In schools, one of the things I think we need to do is actually involve children in civic action much more early and much more often than we do. Kids do need to learn, especially if they come from historically marginalized communities, they will be met with failure, they will be met with resistance, and that's okay. They should keep pushing anyway, because the more you work at it over time, the more likely you are eventually to be successful. I'm Dallas Rogers, and you're listening to City Road. And I'm Isabel Napier from the Sydney Policy Lab. Welcome to the Democratic Experiment. City Road and the Sydney Policy Lab are on a mission to find the spaces and places where democracy happens. Today, we're investigating a place where we all grow up together, our schools. We'll look at what we teach our kids about being good citizens and what it means for our democracies in the generations to come. We're talking with one of the world's leading political philosophers, Professor of Education at Harvard University, Mira Levinson, As a professor, Mira draws from her decade of experience teaching in the Boston and Atlanta public schools. For Mira, classrooms around the world are key sites where we safeguard and shape democracy in the future. She argues that education is the civil rights struggle of our era, and that schools need to do much more than bridge now widely recognized gaps in achievement determined by socioeconomic advantage or disadvantage. Rather, they need to upend curricula and redefine civic education to teach students about power, justice, the need for collective action, and how they can play a role in improving their own lives and society. Uh, So I'm Mira Levinson. I'm a professor of education at Harvard University at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And I have a slightly unusual background in that I did my doctorate straight out of university, and then I became a public school teacher because I decided that the world probably did not need more political theorists than it had, and they probably could use some more dedicated public school teachers. So I taught in the Atlanta public schools and the Boston public schools for a total of eight years over a 10-year period, and then eventually wended my way back into academia once I discovered that actually, although people always describe public school teaching as a perfect job for a working mother, it's in fact a pretty punishing job and I could never really figure out how to be a good teacher and a good parent simultaneously. Right. Uh, What did you learn in that experience, maybe about the school, but also about the academy and about the ideas that you're working with? One of my most fundamental things that I learned was that the things that I had learned doing my undergraduate degree in philosophy and a doctorate in political theory were at best only tangentially informative to my work as a school teacher. So I had written in my thesis that we had an obligation, uh, that I thought that the state had an obligation to help young people develop the capacity for autonomy, meaning that they had the obligation to help young people think about what kind of life they wanted to lead 
and then develop the skills and knowledge to lead that life and then lead it, right? And then when I started teaching in the Atlanta public schools, what that meant on the ground was really different because I was teaching in a school that served almost entirely African-American children uh, who were from very low-income families. And they had the ability to envision lives that they wanted to lead, but those lives were not compatible with the reality of the city or the nation that they were living in, right? So that, say, my children right now are able to say, I want to get a good job. I want to raise a family in a safe neighborhood. I want to say, see my parents on occasion and like, you know, be near my friends and go out and for a drink or whatever on a Saturday night. My students in Atlanta and in Boston couldn't put those things together, right? But in part, they couldn't raise their children in a safe neighborhood and live near their friends and family and gain access to a decent paying job because those things didn't exist in the neighborhoods that they were living in. And so I discovered that my students were being told that education was a means of escape for them. You could escape where you're from. And that felt horrible to me, right? Like nobody asks my children to escape me or to escape where they're growing up. And so that was one of the first times that I really started wrestling with what are the sort of political visions that we're setting forth for education and for our country? And then what are we imposing, especially on the most marginalized kids and asking them to do that? Uh, those of us who are middle class or above and those of us who are white would not ask of ourselves and our own kids. And that's when I first started wrestling with these kinds of questions. Mm. It's kind of the tension between the ideas here and really the empirical reality of our streets and a disconnect between your experience and the experience of the kids that were in the classroom. You better talk us through that because for the Australian audience at least mm – -hmm we mightn't be familiar with the types of economic and structural segregation that you're talking about in the US. Although that's interesting, because I have the impression that, say, the segregation between North Sydney and, say, West Sydney is yes. still fairly yeah. significant, yeah. right? But um, probably not down the same cultural and racial lines as, as the US, perhaps. Got it. Okay, yeah. So cities in the United States are increasingly segregated by race and ethnicity and by income. And there's this picture probably that maybe your Australian audience will have in their minds that this was, that segregation was true of the American South, say, before the civil rights movement. It's important to understand that's actually also very true of the North and the West in the United States, and that actually following the civil rights movement, it's become more profound in, say, the Northeast and the West than it has been even in the South. And so there's this picture also in Americans' minds that, oh, well, say I'm from Massachusetts, so we are progressive, we do not you know, embrace the ethos of segregation or racism that was true. Oh, on the right so, side of the border. Exactly. But it's totally false, right? That the racism may not, until, say, the election of Donald Trump, have been so explicit. But still, uh, there's a lot of coded language, say, right, around, well, is that a good school? And 
good is that a good school or is that a good neighborhood usually means is that a school that has a significant population of white middle class kids or a significant or is that a good neighborhood meaning is that a, a neighborhood that is majority white and middle class and what that means is that because actually we're not willing to admit the ways in which uh, both race and class divide us uh, we don't have means of facing it squarely on and then overcoming it together. And, you know, one of the biggest worries that I have is that this may be especially true, actually, of, say, liberal, progressive, white, middle and upper middle class people in the United States, is there's this idea, and I'll put myself in that category, right? But there's this idea that we have knowledge, and if only people would listen to us, then we could solve the social problems. And I actually think that's totally false, that the only way to solve social problems and civic problems is to do it together, collectively with others. And until we, in fact, start overcoming our own intellectual and cultural um, and it, political is a, segregation. Is it a paternalism, do you think? I think so, yeah. And start opening it out and saying, actually, we need to learn from and with others, people of color, low-income people, uh, people who are not native-born. Uh, there's this idea that we're very open, but we don't actually operate in an open, inclusive way. And in that respect, we have to recover an ideal of democracy that mm. I think that we've lost. Let's get into the political philosophy of this. So how do we do that? That's a great question. Um, I wish I knew. <laughs> uh, so some of my, in schools, one of the things I think we need to do is actually involve children in civic action much more early and much more often than we do. One of the things that I find totally baffling is that we have children in school doing math every single day, reading and writing every single day, often doing science, you know, many times a week, even playing rugby or football or, you know, baseball or whatever, right? Because we recognize that it takes that daily practice every day, every week, every year, four years on end, right, for say the 12 or 13 years of schooling, in order to actually become basically competent. But we don't ask children to do that with respect to citizenship. Yeah, so that's fascinating. So the, the reason that we have professional athletes and so many good athletes in the US is because we train them from a very young age and we get them to practice their sporting activities over and over again all their lives. In the school environment, young people, maybe people from black neighborhoods, aren't practicing their citizenship. And what you're calling for is for more of the practicing of citizenship within the school environment? Yes, that's exactly right. Because, I mean, so it's not only that one reason we have great athletes is that they're getting the chance to practice every day. But in fact, we have so many children practicing every day that then you can find the really great ones, right? But we have basically nobody practicing citizenship mm. every would, single day. What would that look like? How do you practice citizenship in the school? It would mean that in classrooms, children may be asked to make decisions. They may be taught different ways of 
uh, having uh, collective conversations with one another about really hard and difficult controversial issues. They may learn different modes of coming to agreement that there may be consensus. You know, there, there are practices of consensus. There's practice of majority decision making there. You might decide at some point that a mi minority gets the right to make some decision because they have a particular vested interest or, you know, they'll be particularly affected. Uh, student government, student newspapers, debate actually doing citizenship projects in schools where children may select an issue that uh, they care about and uh, they may research it, they may find allies, they may talk about what actions they may take and take those on their own or in concert with others. They may present that to others. They may go do authentic speaking at a local council meeting, at a school board meeting, mm. et cetera. There are all sorts of ways in which young people are actually hungry to make a difference in the world. And if we give them that opportunity, not only are they learning, but they are also contributing at mm. the same time. How do these ideas or how would those ideas fit within the modus operandi of schools today? Do these fit in seamlessly or do these row up against the kind of hierarchy of the school system? That's a great question because in some ways... I misspoke when I said that we are not engaged in ci daily civic education because we are in that the rules of the school and the ways in which schools operate do teach children about what their apparently ideal role is. And usually what they are learning in schools is that their ideal role is to be somebody who is passive, who needs to listen to others, follow rules unquestioningly, and rarely express their own ideas, especially if they dissent from those who are empowered and adults, you know, and so forth, if they have different ideas. And so in that respect, there is a potential conflict between the civic education that we are right now implicitly offering children and the kind of more empowering civic education that I'm arguing we should offer children. But on the other hand, I think it could fit in seamlessly in that it's not that we necessarily have to create another class, right, and find more time in the curriculum. Many of these things are about actually changing the culture of the school, changing what happens in the hallways, what happens in the cafeteria, changing what kinds of roles children can take on, say, in school governance, which don't require that we, say, take time away from English or maths and give it over to civics. You're listening to 2SER 107.3 in Sydney. I'm Isabel Napier from the Sydney Policy Lab, and you've tuned into this City Road episode on schools. In the next part of the discussion, Mira talks about the civic empowerment gap. The civic empowerment gap refers to our ability to more or less accurately predict, based on a person's socioeconomic background, how much civic and political power they are likely to have. How would this play out across the different parts of the city in the different schools in different parts of the city? One of the concepts that I wrote about in a book I published in 2012, No Citizen Left Behind, was an argument that we have in the United States, what I call a civic empowerment gap. And uh, so what that means is you can basically predict 
based on knowing uh, somebody's demographic characteristics, their race or ethnicity, their uh, national origin, their language, how many years of education they have, what their income is, how much civic and political power they're likely to have. And that means whether or not they've ever, say, spoken to a government official, right, whether they've participated in a protest even, whether in the United States, whether or not they vote happily in Australia, that's mm. not a distinction <laughs> so much here, uh, but whether they feel and actually have been listened to and have various kinds of political power. And when I was talking about the implicit form of civic education that we see in many schools, so schools that serve predominantly low-income kids of color in the United States provide a much more oppressive civic education than do schools that serve more higher-income uh, whiter children of especially educated and uh, high-income families, they tend to offer a more empowering civic education, again, like, as part of the implicit curriculum. In addition, they tend to offer actually more elements of the explicit curriculum. They have more extracurricular opportunities. They tend to have more opportunities to actually exercise their voice. And so in order to overcome the civic empowerment gap, I think we both need to increase the amount of explicit civic education and change the culture of schools, especially that serve low-income kids, from being a culture of compliance to being a culture of empowerment. Yeah, so there's a bunch of structural forces there that prevent this from taking place. Can I ask you perhaps a slightly curly question? What would happen in some of the less well-off schools if you did empower those people and they started to push back against these white structures that had been oppressing them? How would that play out in the education system? When I was teaching in the Boston Public Schools, my I was teaching eighth grade uh, civics in action for a couple of years. And my students were doing citizenship projects each uh, term. And one term, I invited the neighborhood representative for the mayor. Uh, so the mayor of Boston had, you know, representatives for or sort of outreach people for each neighborhood. So I invited his outreach person. She said that she would come to their public presentations. A couple of days before uh, their presentations, she contacted me and said, the mayor would like to come. I said, fantastic. Uh, <laughs> she said, he can come at this time. I said, fine, I'm not teaching that time, but I'll pull together some of the best presentations and we'll do a special you know, presentation then. So I pulled together uh, the eight or nine best projects and prepped the kids and we were all together and the mayor was there and other judges who I had gotten from the community were there and the kids stood up to present. And it was not until we were about three or four presentations in that I thought to myself, oh, what made each of the presentations so good, the reason that I had selected these kids was that they had selected very concrete problems to research and take action about. So the first set of kids stood up and they said, we live in public housing pretty close to the school. Here are some photos of our streets and our stoops, our steps, uh, seven weeks after the last snow and ice storm. You can see that they are still not cleared. I'm go now going to tell the story of my 84-year-old grandmother who can't leave our apartment because she is worrying, worried about falling. We contacted the Boston Housing Authority and we contacted the mayor. And here's excerpts of the letters we wrote and we did not hear back. And then the next presentation came on about the parks and an issue with a broken switch 
swing that was quite dangerous and how somebody had, uh, you know, the rust had whatever, they had to get a tetanus shot. And we contacted the Department of Parks and Recreation and the mayor. We did not hear back, right? By time four or five, we contacted the mayor. We did not hear back. He was getting more and more and more purple. And by the end of it, he was literally livid. Um, we have this wonderful photo of my students all looking thrilled and him looking <laughs> just outraged. And then once we were over and we went outside the school, he started screaming at me. Really? This was the worst civics class I have ever seen. Uh, this is one of some of the worst teaching I've ever seen in the city of Boston. Wow. Um, you know, I was really worried I was going to be fired. I was just about to say that is democracy in action. It is. So what was fascinating is my students were under no illusions that he was happy about it. Mm. And they were thrilled. They said, did you see that, Dr. Levinson? <laughs> we really got under his skin. He heard us give these presentations, and he knew that he couldn't answer back. They were thrilled beyond belief. And one of the things that I worry about is that often um, civic educators think that we have to give kids the experiences of success, because if they don't experience success, then they'll get demoralized, then they won't engage. And I actually think that that's wrong. My students were equally excited, in some ways more so, to have shown up the mayor mm. than to have had him turn around and say, oh, you guys are all wonderful and I, you know, and I honor and, and applaud you. And it's also really important, I think, for all citizens to learn that often civic action does not yield results, right? Engaging in democracy is messy, it's long-term, it's really boring a lot of the time, right? And we have to learn that too. And for some reason, we can teach kids that about math, right? Like the quadratic equation is hard. There's <laughs> nothing easy about it for anyone. And you just have to like press through to through it until you get it. But we should be doing that same sort of thing with civics and kids do need to learn, especially if they come from historically marginalized communities, they will be met with failure. They will be met with resistance. And that's okay. They should keep pushing anyway, because the more you work at it over time, the more likely you are eventually to be successful. Mm. So if we build a more democratic and civic space in the school, let's zoom out to the city now. What would sure. that mean for our cities if, if that took place? The real piece of this, and this gets back to my concerns about segregation, is to create intentional opportunities that are supported by the local government that's not just about civic activists, although that's important too, to bring together people from different parts of the city who have different agendas, different concerns, different needs, really to start learning together and about each other's concerns and to learn how to listen to one another, that I think one of the most profound ways in which politicians in cities and government officials in cities harm democracy is by going to different neighborhoods and different organizations and hearing, you know, it's sort of being open to hearing all of these different constituencies, but they are the only ones who hear, right? And then they make whatever decision they make. And we are weakened by being held in our separate constituencies 
This goes back to my ethos that the only way that we are going to solve public problems together is to bring the public truly together across lines of difference because we won't understand the problems or potential solutions until we do so. And so we need to start finding more frequent ways to bring people together across lines of difference to engage with one another in ways that will be hard and messy, Mm. but that that will finally actually help us start to construct solutions which make sense. Mm. I guess um, just to kind of think about the theory of democracy a little bit there, one idea that you're putting forward very strongly is the idea that Democracy is not this abstract thing. It's this thing that we perform every day. And the more we perform it, the better we get at it. I just wonder how we might work across those differences through the performance of democracy. It it sort of um, speaks to the way that the structures of the school itself come into play, you know, and that they're they're very important power structures that you need to overcome in this process as well, I guess. Yeah, no, school, I mean, one of the really interesting things in thinking about schools and democracies is that schools are both in democracies, right? And so in that respect, they are subject to democratic control and they reflect the, the society that they exist in now, but they are also for democracy in that they are trying to always educate young people to create a better society than we have now uh, and some more ideal place. But those come into tension, right? Because sometimes because there's always contestation over the ideal. What what kind of better society should we be educating for? Up next, the Lab and City Road will continue on our mission to find the places and spaces where democracy happens. Together with political economist and agroecologist Eric Holt Jimenez, we're talking about food. Based in California, Eric directs Food First, an institute that works to end the injustices that cause hunger through research, education, and action. He has spent decades exploring, questioning, and ultimately transforming the way we eat. If you like the show, you can find us at cityroadpod.org.